episode 101, What It Takes to Be a Physician Entrepreneur. Today, I speak with Arlen Myers, MD and MDA, and also the president and CEO of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Plenty of big names have talked about the, in quotes, physician entrepreneur, like it's some kind of epic paradox. Dr. Arlen Myers is here to disagree. Dr. Myers is the president and CEO of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs, otherwise known as SOAP. And he talks about why this isn't actually the case today. And he also offers a few words of advice for physicians to make it even less the case in the future. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Arlen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for inviting me. You are the president and CEO of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. So let's talk about physician entrepreneurs, because those are two words that I'm not going to say it's uncommon, but it's not overly common to hear in the same sentence. Right. Well, you know, the traditional wisdom is that doctors make lousy business people. So that's why you have the impression that you do and a lot of people do. But, you know, frankly, it's a myth. It's just entirely and patently untrue. And a, a lot of it depends on how you define entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship. There are lots of different definitions. But more importantly, the goal, as it applies to physicians in biomedicine, is to create user-defined value through the deployment of biomedical or clinical innovation. You know, traditionally, most people think of entrepreneurs as people who create businesses. But the fact of the matter is that that's just one of many ways that physicians who have an entrepreneurial mindset can create user-defined value through the deployment of innovation. If you think about it, there's like five or six different kinds of physician entrepreneurs that fit into that model. One is small to medium-sized independent practitioners who essentially are professional service businesses, whether they realize it or not. The second are technopreneurs. In other words, someone that wants to get a gadget or an idea or a drug to market. A third would be an entrepreneur, which means an employee of an organization who is trying to act like an entrepreneur within that organization. A social entrepreneur is trying to improve the human condition where it's really more of a mission-driven organization rather than a profit-driven organization. There are physician investors who contribute to the process. There are third-party service providers, doctors who become intellectual property lawyers or wealth managers or financiers or whatever and intervene in the process. So the point is that there are lots of different ways that physicians can add value through the deployment of innovation without necessarily creating a company. I do believe that perhaps the misperception maybe or the common conventional wisdom of the whole affair is driven by that one category that you mentioned, the physician trying to start a company. Correct. You have both an MD as well as an MBA. So you obviously have business training and business schools exist for a reason. Nothing for nothing, but there's a lot of people that go through business schools that haven't managed to become entrepreneurs in that very classic sense either. Well, there's another part to this puzzle, and that is, in my view, in order to be an entrepreneur, a physician entrepreneur, you have to have an entrepreneurial mindset. 
And that means a state of mind that incorporates a couple of features, not the least of which is being a problem seeker before you're a problem solver. Most businesses fail for, I mean, they fail for a number of reasons, but two big reasons are they don't create the right product market mix. They fail to understand the customer completely. They have a solution looking for a problem. And the second is the business model is not viable. In my view, and I work with scientists, engineers, clinicians, health professionals, technical people, very, very, very few of those, back of the envelope, 1%, have an entrepreneurial mindset. The idea is not, in my view, to create entrepreneurs. You can't do that. You can't change the stripes on a tiger. However, there is a small percentage that exists in graduate schools and in medical schools and other health professional schools that have an entrepreneurial mindset, either overtly or covertly. And the idea behind what we're trying to do is to create a fertile field for them to grow. I can't teach anybody anything. I can't make anybody do anything. All I can do is provide them with information, skills, knowledge, attitudes, networks, mentors to possibly help them get in touch with what I call their innerpreneur. It's interesting what you say about the best entrepreneurs, or let's just say probably the only successful entrepreneurs are the ones that are able to identify the problem. I just actually finished a book by Kevin Ashton called How to Fly a Horse, and he was talking about in order to really identify a problem, you need a beginner's mind. In other words, once you know too much about a topic, what you tend to do is have very specific selective attention. And you can miss very obvious things that if a rookie shows up in the room with kind of very open eyes, that rookie might identify. The big example is rolling luggage. You know, everyone was in the whole luggage industry was talking about what's the problem with luggage? Oh, it needs to be more ergonomic. It needs to have a better handle strap. It needs to be uh -huh. uh, better the clasps or zippers or something. When honestly, sure. the real problem with luggage is that it's really heavy to carry. So somebody put wheels on it and revolutionized the industry. And I could see from a physician standpoint that this might be very difficult to have a beginner's mind in an industry that you've spent a decade just studying even before you start working in. Yeah. And it's not a problem. Part of the reality is that physicians are not chosen because they are creative. Undergraduate applicants to medical schools are chosen because they conform. They're very good at memorizing a bunch of stuff that they can regurgitate on a standardized test. And once they get into medical school, they are driven to conform. So there's this conflict between create value through innovation, but toe the line. The reality and the rubber meets the road when we use the term disruptive physicians, because some physicians who threaten the status quo are labeled as disruptive. I mean that in a clinical sense, not in a business sense, but sometimes the two get blurred. And I think that in a world where fee-for-service is migrating to value-based, it is an unrealistic expectation to ask physicians to deliver value-based care when they have no clue how to do it, nor do they get any training in how to do it. So why would you expect them to do it? That's a very legitimate question. One of the things that you had mentioned at the top of this conversation was giving 
tools to physicians to help them be innovative or help them adapt to this new environment. Right. What can be done or what are you doing to help facilitate this? What we're doing is providing them with knowledge, the knowledge, skills, and attitudes they need to understand entrepreneurship. So we're giving them knowledge, networks, resources, mentors, experiential learning. And I think that programs that don't provide all of those things, for example, just education platforms, is not a whole product solution. It doesn't translate into action. My experience is that anyone, now I, I work at a graduate level, PhDs, postdocs, but you know, I've also had experience in working with K through 12 and STEM education. So I don't necessarily, this has to do just with dealing with quote, smart people, whatever that means. I believe that people need experience. They need to learn from their mistakes. They need to go out and apply things they learn in a classroom and they need help. They need mentors. They need people who over, I mean, that's the basis of medical training. We have attendings that oversee how residents and medical students work and give them progressive levels of responsibility under supervision. I believe the same thing has to happen in physician entrepreneurship, which was the reason we created the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. And that's the problem with MD-MBA programs. It's the problem with how graduate business education is presented to physicians. It's an incomplete solution. It's kind of like, let's talk about these things in a very sterile environment. It's almost like the difference between a clinical trial and the real world. We can talk about this all in theory, right. but once well, you get out there. Right. Well, it would be as if, you know, like in the old days, it would, in medical education, it, it would be as if we just had people sitting in an amphitheater with the professor at the front of the amphitheater in front of a cadaver demonstrating anatomy. And then after you take the course, you go out and you see patients. I mean, it doesn't work that way. That's why the Flexner Report modified physician education in the 1900s. It didn't work. So the idea was doctors need to go get hands-on training with patients at the bedside under supervision. I believe the same thing needs to happen with physician entrepreneurship. Give an example of maybe a student or some sort of composite example of what somebody was able to do and learn that really made a difference. This whole issue of medical student or graduate training education in, in entrepreneurship is a whole other subject. But these days, more and more medical students and residents and younger physicians are interested in innovating. They're interested in getting an idea to a patient. So whether it's an iPhone app or whether it's a care delivery innovation or whether it's a process innovation or a device or whatever, there are many vehicles now, fortunately, to assist people to do that, the most notably of which are accelerators, where if you have a digital health idea, you can go to an accelerator, work with mentors, possibly get some money. You have a prototyping lab where you can develop you know, a quick prototype or a rapid turnaround. There are opportunities now where students can spend time in industry doing various experiential learning opportunities. They work with technology transfer offices to actually do due diligence and IP. I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of ways now, fortunately, for students to get involved and for residents to get involved. Now, the fact of the matter is that when you're a medical student or a resident, you're up to your eyeballs in being a doctor. There's really not a whole lot of time to do this stuff. But 
there are pieces of it that you can do until you get into a position where you, if you're interested in it, you can pursue it more actively. Some medical students, frankly, have said, I don't want to wait. I'm going to get an MD after medical school, and I'm not going to do a residency, and I'm going to go to work for a startup, and that's that. I don't think that's a good idea. And I think a lot of people would say, if you don't have clinical experience, you're just another suit with an MD after your name. You're really not a physician, but other people have a different approach. I know one of the things that you have called out was so-called innovation done in a haphazard way, innovation done without clinical validity, right. is having some time on the job as an actual physician, do you feel like that's kind of the prerequisite for making sure that any innovation that occurs really has that clinical validity? Or is it more you have to work as a physician to understand what's going to work for a physician? There's a couple parts to the answer to that question. One is, particularly when it comes to digital health, you need to just not technically validate and verify what it is that you've created. An iPhone app that doesn't have any bugs, that does what it's technically supposed to do. The second is commercial validation, which means, is the dog going to eat the food? Did you make something that satisfies an unmet need such that someone is going to pay you to buy it? But the gap or one of the many gaps in digital health is that a lot of the digital health products and services are not clinically valid. They don't do for the patient what they're supposed to do. It turns out that yesterday there was a hearing in Washington about regulatory oversight of digital health for this very reason. Is it snake oil? Is it right? And it's not just the FDA that's sitting at the table. There are multiple governmental entities, the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Communications Commission, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, sometimes even the SEC, these folks are looking over physician entrepreneurs' shoulders saying, are you producing things that are safe and effective? If they fall within certain regulatory guidelines, for example, the FDA has oversight over medical devices. Well, if a digital health app is not deemed to be a medical device by a very stringent definition in the reg, then it falls under some other jurisdiction, but it doesn't mean that you're immune from oversight. And just from a business perspective, forget the regulations. Why would you produce a product that doesn't do what it's supposed to do? So that's an example of how this ecosystem is evolving and how, in my view, it is somewhat haphazard. It's patient beware. Doctors don't know what to prescribe. Patients don't know what to use. The regulators are trying to figure out the headline is digital health needs a light touch when it comes to regulatory, but I don't see a whole lot of heavy hands of regulation putting on a light touch. It's funny that you mentioned the hearing that happened yesterday, this morning, in one of the multitude of email newsletters that I received was a big article about how the next blockbuster in diabetes care is not going to be a diabetes drug. It's going to be a diabetes technology to help diabetes patients control their condition. You know, there's two examples of that. You know, one is 3D printed artificial pancreas. You know, I mean, is, what is that? Is that a drug? Is it a device? Is it a combined product? Is it a combination of drug device, digital health, remote sensing, feedback loops? Yes. And how will all that be regulated? And the other is patient entrepreneurs creating their own. 
And there are many, many stories now of parents with children with diabetes who are tired of waiting for FDA regulatory approval for Medtronic's so-called artificial pancreas. So they just do their own. These are electrical engineers with kids with diabetes, so they concoct off-the-shelf products to allow their kids to self-monitor their glucose level, send a signal to a pump that pumps the right amount of insulin, that measures the response, and that creates a feedback loop that self-controls insulin delivery. And oh, by the way, they use an iPhone to measure what their kid is doing from anywhere in the world. So you're seeing a lot of bottom-up patient initiatives as well, but that gets pretty ugly when it comes to the Internet of Things and regulation, oversight, cybersecurity. I mean, do you really want someone hacking into your kid's jury-rigged insulin pump? Yeah, and I could also see this blurred line that's starting to occur. You think about what it takes to do all of the clinical phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials to get a drug on the market and gain the FDA stamp of approval that, yes, this drug is safe and it can firm and validate its effectiveness. To think that we're going to have, for example, mom or dad electrical engineer cooking up these devices or or even any given app simply do not have the wherewithal or the time maybe to dedicate to this that a big pharma might. The age old issue with the FDA and the reason why it was created in this whole conversation about regulatory oversight is how do you balance the public health, the protection of the public health, which is really the reason the FDA was created with advancing or not hindering innovation. I mean, ever since the creation of the FDA, that has been the issue. And it still is and will continue to be. And then when you throw in the business model and the business risk of a clinical trial, then most businesses, even though, as I said, it doesn't make sense to market, produce, and sell a product that does not work. It's just bad business. They don't want to do that because of the risk. We all know what happens to a blockbuster biotech stock that fails a clinical trial. It tanks. In some instances, it destroys the company. So people don't want to take that business risk unless they have to. And in many instances, they don't have to. It's going to be very interesting to see where this all shakes out because you're absolutely right. It's kind of a balance of risk and reward. And it'll be interesting to see how we can enable entrepreneurship to flourish and good ideas to flourish while at the same time making sure that patient safety isn't put at risk. Well, I think the way this is going to sort out, like most things American, is somebody's going to sue somebody. (laughs) It's like the Winston Churchill thing. Americans will do the right thing, but they'll try every other way before they do. (laughs) What's going to happen is that someone is going to get hurt by an iPhone app or by a device that is not either under the purview of the FDA or has end-arounded it. Theranos could be an example, is a case study. You don't tug on Superman's cape. Again, I think what's going to happen is somebody's going to sue somebody, and then it'll become a high-profile case, and then all of a sudden people will start doing stuff because now they have to. That's not something you teach in your coursework at SOAP? Just put on a black turtleneck and... uh... (laughs) 
Well, there seem to be a lot of black turtlenecks lying around these days. <laughs> yeah. So one thing that you've said that I found intriguing, you said doctors are from Mars and pairs and investors and other stakeholders are for Venus, that there's right. this sort of cultural misalignment that often causes. Right. Talk about that. What I call digital health gaposis. There's a lot of issues that preclude getting a digital health idea to market, and we've alluded to some of them. But one of them is in the early stages of development where clinicians, now to go back to the point of problem seekers and problem solvers, nobody's going to be able to do anything just identifying a problem. You have to come up with a solution. So I don't mean to imply that the only way you will be successful is to be a problem seeker. You have to find a solution. So that means you have to find someone that you can work with to develop a technology that solves the problem in a way that the patient or the user or the customer wants you to solve it at a price they're willing to pay. When it comes to doctors working with engineers, I mean, God bless them. I work with lots of these folks. They come at these things from a different perspective. They have different cultures. They have different lingo. They have different ethos. They have different approaches. And one of the problems is engaging physicians to work with technologists. And it happens at multiple levels. It's as simple as a doctor seeing patients wanting to work with a software engineer to design an iPhone app. Well, the engineer comes at that from a different perspective than the clinician. The clinician says, I'll draw on the back of a napkin a couple of buttons that I want you to make, you know, and here's what I want it to do. And then the clinician gets back from the engineer, you know, specs and sheets and verification documents and quality assurance, you know, all this other stuff. It's very hard and challenging to kind of get it done quickly, cheaply, to the point where it works. And then when you take that to the organizational level, so now you have a bunch of digital health entrepreneurs that with or without the input of end users have created a solution that they think solves a problem. And now they want to test it in a clinical setting. They don't want to do a clinical trial, but they just want to put it into the environment and see if it does what it's supposed to do. Well, good luck. I mean, when you knock on the door of a CMIO, a chief medical information officer, or a CIO at a hospital system, and you say, be an alpha tester for my iPhone app, and I want you to bolt it on to your electronic medical record, good luck. HIPAA, security, money, end user, system issues, personnel, cost, they all come into play. So it's hard to get these folks to work together. Some of it has to do with people-to-people issues. Some of it have to do with system-to-system and culture-to-culture issues. But there are significant barriers, and that's what we're trying to break down. There are different ways people are trying to do that. An example is we have an ecosystem in Colorado called the Prime Health Collaborative, and they have put together something called the Digital Health Challenge. So they, incur- in fact, they have a RS, a request for submissions right now, and So if you're a digital health entrepreneur, whether you're a doctor or not, and you think you have a solution that you'd like to test in a hospital, you submit your application and it's vetted. And what happens is that instead of somebody giving you money for your app, they give you access. They say, we have this problem. We think you can solve it. We're going to allow you to work with us in our hospital system to prototype or test this for six weeks, six months, whatever. And then we're going to measure the end, the result, the outcome. And if it works, then we can have some conversations. Well, 
I think that's a useful mechanism. However, uh, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't because, as you well know, I mean, it's like a dating service. You can introduce folks on Match.com, but there's no guarantee they're going to go home together. There has to be a process for walking people through the system. And entrepreneurs are, are pretty impatient and they don't want to deal with rules, regs, IRBs, you know, cross the T's, dot the I's, submit it in triplicate. We need a committee to approve it, et cetera, et cetera. That just doesn't work. So there are challenges, but people are trying to approach it in different ways. And there have been some successes, but I think we have a long way to go. It has been discussed numerous times that it is this chicken and egg thing, that in order to create the evidence, in order to validate any given technology or otherwise, you right. need to have people using it, but you can't get people to use it until it's validated. So, And then you throw in the money. You can't get the money until you show it works, and you can't show it works until you get the money. And then you can't do that until you get the patience. Yeah, I was at a forum not too long ago where there was a, a provider organization that was a presenter table. It was a long table. And then there was a couple of tech entrepreneurs. And one of them was kind of hanging off the side of the table. And someone asked him how he felt working with a provider organization, you know, what the environment was. And he goes, well, you know what? I think a good metaphor for that is this table. I'm kind of hanging <laughs> off the end of it. You know, like you guys yeah. are down at the other end of the table having this big conversation and Right. And I'm kind of getting trickle down information and I'm not I have half a seat. Right. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. So let's talk about soap for a sec. If a physician is feeling the creative urge and, and feeling like they have some innovation to contribute, how do they hook up with soap and what advice might you have for them? Soap is just so people know, soap is a uh, global nonprofit. It's a 501c6 member association with a supporting 501c3 education and research foundation. So it's a nonprofit. And we're a biomedical and health innovation and entrepreneurship network. We're an example of something called a COIN, which is a collaborative online innovation network focused on biomedical and clinical innovation. So if somebody wants to be part of the community, they simply go to the website which is at soapnet.org, and they join the organization for the grand total of $75 a year. <laughs> we made this thing ridiculously cheap because doctors are cheap, and they always question the value of another dollar going to some member organization. So we really tried to make it cheap, not low value. In fact, we think it's very high value, but you go to the site and you join, and we have chapters all over the world, including most major cities in the United States where there's a lot of biocluster activity. Examples, New York, Washington, Philly, San Francisco, Chicago, etc., Denver. And you participate primarily at the local level with their chapters. So it's a lot like Rotary. You know, it's an international organization with chapters all over the world where people get together and do stuff. That's what we do. So you show up at the chapter meetings, and the basic idea is we've created this large sandbox. The underlying hypothesis is that if you put like-minded people together in the same room and you focus them on the goal, and in this case it's to get an idea to a patient, then usually good things happen. That's been our experience. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today, Arlen. Thanks, and I appreciate the opportunity to share what we're doing. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of 
all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.